suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener, to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is episode 241. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. Normally with me is a panel of fellows, white privileged guys who sit around the microphone explaining the world. Something a little bit different this week because I'm on holidays, so I'm with my friend Brian and we're sitting in a beach house in a remote location somewhere on Kangaroo Island and I've, um, I've wrangled Brian in to, to participate in the podcast. So welcome aboard, Brian, to the, to the FAIR podcast, The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Thank you, Trevor. I'm very much looking forward to this experience and uh, listening to what you've got to say. Yes, and you'll be chipping in as well, because, dear listener, we're privileged. Brian has some expertise uh, in in the world of business. He's been a CEO of of a major company or major companies, Brian, so... That would be correct. Yep. Uh, most recently, uh, Managing Director of Pandora. Yep. In the UK. Yeah. So, he's been there at the top echelon of power <laughs> <laughs> and has seen it at work in the corporate world and... He also works as a consultant for different groups as well now, advising people. So we're going to pick Brian's brains and we're going to talk in this episode about corporations and power, um, particularly in Australia and what's been going on. So what has prompted this uh, for me was I bought a book. Thank you to the patrons for your contributions, allowing me to buy books guilt-free. This one is called Corporate Power in Australia, Do the 1% Rule by Lindy Edwards and she has basically examined corporate power in Australia over the last uh, five decades or so and, and is asking the question whether these uh, large corporates are exercising undue power and what's, what's really going on. And she describes uh, or she asks the question whether we're in a Medici cycle. Brian, you'd be familiar with the Medici family of Italy who were... <laughs> Control? Uh, no, no. Oh. You'll need to explain that a little oh, bit. Oh, okay. Well, they were a famous family who, uh, in Florence, I think, who basically ruled um, Italian um, banking and politics. And and the idea of the Medici cycle is that you could have a large corporation with economic power that uses that power to gain political power and then uses the political power to gain more economic power, which gets them more political power. Is it, this is the Medici cycle that she ah, is yes. describing, mm-hmm. that, um, that by leveraging uh, economic into political, it then helps you get more economic power and it's just uh, like a, a snowball falling down a hill, gathering more energy. Um, so, yeah, so that's the Medici cycle. She asks whether we're in the middle of. And... Just a couple of statistics to warm us up with, stretching exercises in this. Uh, in the ASX Top 100 Companies, Brian, back in 1993, uh, not that long ago, 27 years ago, their percentage, uh, their contribution to GDP 
of Australia was 27%. These are the top 100 companies. Yep. 1993. In 2015, that had grown to 47%. So... We were having a discussion yesterday with our wives, and your wife was giving the example of of people wanting to buy locally and wanting to support local organic shops and things. And I kind of said, "Well, your experience is not an argument." <laughs> <laughs> yes, trying to save the world uh, uh, one organic shop at a time. I think you could describe it as. Indeed. So hard and fast statistics like that show um, that in a period of 22 years, they've gone from controlling 27% of the GDP of our country to 47 just shows that the big companies are getting bigger. So I don't think that's in doubt. No, that would be a, a correct, I yeah. think. And I agree with that. They also represent a very large workforce as well. So it's not just GDP that they would be contributing to they also employ a lot of australians mm, yes and uh and they're only going to get bigger like the forces at work that have brought them from 27 percent to 47 percent don't seem to be slowing down in my view because it seems to me that the world's getting more complicated economies of scale are more and more important so it's much harder for small people on small businesses to enter a market and compete. You have to be of a significant size because of the complexities and the numbers involved. Yes. I don't see that changing. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah. The, the, the figures on GDP, though, mm. um, where do foreign companies, large foreign companies, come into this particular statistic? Um, well, they wouldn't appear on that ASX Top 100, no. do they? Right. But they would be contributing to GDP. Uh, yes, they would. So the other... Well, if we said that the top 100 companies were responsible for 47% of Australia's GDP, mm-hmm. the other 53% isn't necessarily small companies. Not at all. No, you're dead right. It's, it's probably a uh, quite a large percentage is attributed to foreign companies working and uh, producing in Australia as well. Yeah, good point. The other thing, uh, statistics you said was... Um, back in 1980 in terms of lobbying. So mm-hmm. uh, lobbying in those days was, in her words, sort of fairly unprofessional and there was just a handful of hacks wandering around Parliament House. It wasn't what it is today where, by her count, we're up to 5,000 professional lobbyists. So these are people paid for, not by small business, to do their lobbying, but by big business. Correct. Yeah. Um, back in 1980, there would have been a number of uh, business organisations that did a significant amount of lobbying as well. Yes. Having worked in, a, in an industry where importing or import quotas existed for quite some time, um, the manufacturing uh, industry lobbied extremely hard at that time to keep quotas in place. Mm. Yep. Yep. Well... Let me just give these three um, examples of power and mm-hmm. then we'll talk about maybe the shoe industry and just your experience of what happened there. So um, so Lindy, in her book, describes corporations of, as having three kinds of power which they can exercise um, and get what they want from our political leaders. And one is structural power where we rely on big business um, and they're important to us in many industries and we need to make policies that suit them because they could just up and leave and go and um, 
and put their business in another country. So that's what she calls a structural power. Um, and if they fail, we all fail to some extent. So our, our, our interests coincide with them and that we want them to, to succeed because it's in our own interests. She talks about the power of ideas. She calls ideational power, which is the ability of business to shape the debate. So um, they set the terms of the debate. They control the media. Uh, they have think tanks who are producing research papers and their ability to shape the debate um, in terms of the ideas is the second type of power. And the third type of power is instrumental power, which is um, political donations and in particular the revolving door where we have players who move from industry into political advisory roles and back out to industry. So if you look at the coal industry, for example, uh, Michael West and his blog was showing something where there's this incredible movement of people from the coal industry into ministers' offices as advisors and then back out into the coal industry. And um, so... And we've seen it with, in recent times, Julie Bishop and there was another politician off the top of my head, the guy from South Australia, sort of campish guy. Um, Alexander Downer. Yeah, uh, yes, and another one, a similar description, uh, <laughs> who, uh, after resigning from Parliament, um, six months later, they're working for some corporation in the field that they were in charge of as advisors. And so... The risk is, like, there, there would not have been an ironclad deal with these people, with these ministers to say, oh, do the right thing by us and we'll have a job for you at the end. But there's an impl that implication arises if over the course of many years you keep offering jobs to ex-ministers. Then that's just an unwritten, known deal <laughs> that's possible to you. You don't have to write it down. No. An assumption made. Yeah, indeed. So... Um, uh, so anyway, we're going to talk about a few examples where there was um, one is going to be the mining tax and another one is going to be coals and Woolworths. But um, just in so, terms of – sorry, Brian? The, the structural power. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about the structural power because yep. surely organisations would look for a return on capital mm -hmm. as to where they would run their business. And up and leaving a country uh, would be a very disruptive uh, yep. Okay. Move to make. Yep. Okay. If the so just reading from the book here, if the corporation's preferred policy enables them to capture wealth in the supply chain and is supported by a majority of independent public interest institutions as being in the national interest, then um, this suggests that business is prevailing due to their structural power. It suggests that features of the global economy, such as economies of scale or competition over company tax rates, are such that we need to facilitate the profits of the most powerful as part of the strategy to advance the national interest. So, look, they might argue um, we can't produce shoes in this country without special deals. Mm -hmm. yep. And if you want us to employ shoe makers and have a shoe manufacturing then we need the special deal and so the as a community we might say okay we want people employed in in this field therefore we will make policies that benefit you because it also benefits us so yep. that's what she means by okay. structural power yep. yep 
So, speaking of shoemaking, what's happened in the world of shoemaking in Australia in the last uh, 40 years? Oh, well, obviously, we don't have a shoe manufacturing uh, industry in Australia anymore. Mm. Um, when I first got into the shoe industry, um, at that time, the manufacturing industry was quite heavily protected by a system of quotas and tariffs. And uh, during the 1980s, uh, the the quota system became more uh, demanding of retailers where we had to purchase quota um, and along along with tariffs. At one stage, footwear tariffs were 40%. Um, so not only were you paying for quota to bring in a certain number of pairs of shoes, you also had to pay a 40% tariff on top of that. Mm. Um, and, of course, the manufacturing uh Industry lobbied extremely hard to keep that uh, protection in place, but over a period of time, um, with the Labor government in place, in fact, the quota system was removed and tariffs gradually re- gradually reduced from their forty percent, um, progressively twenty five, twenty fifteen, ten, and now I still think there's a five percent tariff on footwear coming mm. into the country. Mm. Um, a- as that happens. I think when I first started in the footwear industry, there was about 60 footwear manufacturers in northern Melbourne, northern suburbs of Melbourne, mm. and today there are none. Yep. Um, what year would that, would that have been, 60 uh, manufacturers? Uh, mid-70s through to early 90s, yep. that decline happened. Yep. Um, and the impact on the price of footwear was quite significant. Australians were paying uh, quite a heavy price for their footwear mm. and a, you know a reasonable example would be in 1993 when quotas were finally removed the price of a particular f- shoe that we were selling went from $30 to $15 overnight mm. for the consumers so mm. there was a huge benefit to the consumer to mm. pay less for their shoes mm. because of that removal of quotas yep. but of course what it also meant was that we had a significant um, unemployment issue with older people working in the footwear industry who uh, were made redundant. Yep. Just thinking of it, um, that number of 60-odd shows it was quite a fragmented um, industry. It didn't have a major manufacturing company in the way that sort of Ford and Holden did. So I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head here that they obviously lost the policy debate where they were saying we need to protect these jobs, you need to yes. have these um, uh, quotas in place and people said, well, no, in fact, we prefer to have cheap shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we had car manufacturers, but we didn't have 60 different car manufacturing no. firms. They were bigger and of a different scale where they could that probably helped them to survive until today when we've just had the news of, uh, which one, Holden? Holden. Holden disappearing. Yeah. The fact that there was only the two of them meant they had a lot more power and ability to oh, successfully absolutely. intimidate and talk to government, whereas the, I guess the 60 footwear manufacturers banded together as an organisation of footwear manufacturers but didn't have the same clout to some no. extent. and mm. there were quite a number of larger footwear manufacturers at that, that particular time. But when mm. I talk about larger, it might have they may have employed at 150 or 200 people. Yeah. And again, they were competitors as such and not mm. a strong lobby lobby group. Yeah. Um, 
back in those uh, that era, Pacific Dunlop were probably one of the largest footwear manufacturers in Australia, mm. uh, and they lobbied particularly hard mm. to maintain quotas. Lots of big company, Pacific yeah. Dunlop. Yeah. Oh, their footwear division mm. was was you know obviously a division of Pacific Dunlop. Mm. Um, but you're right, they lost the the policy debate. Mm. Do you want to tell your union story? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, look, I I was uh, CEO of a a footwear manufacturer for a short period of time uh, in the northern suburbs of Melbourne and we employed 150 people in a what would be considered a state-of-the-art uh, factory. Uh, we had a lot of long-term employees. The business had been going for about 25 years um, and uh, the footwear union at the time were quite powerful and negotiated a new or wanted to negotiate a new EBA with us and we uh, we were obviously at that time competing against uh, Chinese imported shoes, and we actually owned a joint venture factory in China as well. Uh, however, we we considered our factory in Melbourne quite unique in that we could produce shoes of a very high quality at a reasonable price. However, the difficulty with shoe manufacturing is that you need, at the start of each season, a high level of production, and then it gradually uh, reduces down as you go through the season, and then at the start of the next season, you need to ramp up again. Which meant we we met we needed a more flexible workforce, uh, and so we went to the union and we said we would like to guarantee your your workers, our workers, uh, guarantee them a wage, a weekly wage, uh, for six months at a time. We will they will receive exactly the same salary. However, we need more flexibility with our workforce at the start of each season. Uh, we needed some overtime to be worked. We needed RDOs to be worked. However, at the back end of the season, those same people could have three- and four-day weekends. Mm. So in the busy time, they might be working a Saturday. Yes. But in the slow time, they might be having Friday off. Yep. But they wouldn't be getting paid double time and a half on the Saturday. It would just be the... Yeah. 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 Um, and we were quite prepared to negotiate on, mm. on penalty rates or, mm. you know... What we really wanted to do was get the union to agree to be more flexible mm. in their approach. Mm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the union's reaction to us was simply uh, an absolute no. We wouldn't even consider it and uh, wanted to know what redundancy entitlements we would write into the EBA in the event of us closing the factory. Right. Yep. Um, Which happened shortly afterwards. Uh, within or, six months mm. of that discussion, uh the factory started to get closed down mm. and 150 people lost their jobs and they didn't need to. Yeah, because it could have kept going for another five years. I, I think like we had it. four or five years mm. of production left mm. uh, where we would have maintained our competitiveness. Mm. Yep, yep. Those were the days, Brian, of unions <laughs> with power. <laughs> with power, yeah. What, what's your experience with, question without notice, your experience with unions in, in retail of uh, like... Oh, look, you know, the, um, the, uh, my experience of unions in retail is that they have had little, very little impact on providing benefits to shop uh, right. workers right. at all. So yeah. uh, would the majority of employees have been a member of the union or? Uh, yeah, I think so. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. Right. Um, however, um, that didn't really provide. You didn't hear much from them? Not at all. Is that right? Never. Really? Yeah. So I 
I've worked in specialty retail now for 35 years and I've had and and been quite high in in a number of organisations and never had any contact with unions at all. Now, would that be the shoppies union? Yeah. Right. We'll get onto the shoppies union in a a little while. That's interesting. After all those years of experience and you've had virtually no contact. No contact at all. Wow. Okay. Right. Okay. So getting back to this book, dear listener, um, Corporate Power Power in Australia um, by Lindy Edwards, so what she's done is looked at some different examples uh, that's happened throughout history and asked what power was exercised by corporations and um, what lessons can we learn from it. And the first example she gives is of the, um, the mining tax. So you might remember, dear listener, that um, uh, sort of after 2000, we had a mining boom in this country and prices skyrocketed with China's increasing demand for um, our, our minerals. And she quotes a statistic that from 2002 to 2007, profits from mining grew from $6 billion to $32 billion. And at the same time, the tax from mining grew from $2 billion to $4 billion. So profits from 6 to 32, tax from 2 to 4. So clearly uh, the government looked at that and said, well, we need to be getting more tax out of the mining companies when they're making these super for profits. Um, so, uh, so the Rudd government attempted to introduce a new mining tax to try and capture some extra tax when there was super profits occurring. And so looking at the idea of structural power, were the mining companies able to exercise structural power? And well, one of the things about a mine is that you just can't pick it up and take it off overseas. So Mm. they, they, they might threaten to close a mine and some of them did threaten that they would put projects on hold and not do exploration or not open mines. Um, but then the stock exchange got hold of them and said, we better tell us more about this because that's relevant to your stock price. And um, companies like Rio then had to admit that they actually had made no decision to suspend any mines at all. This was just bluff to the government, uh, only Extrata showed evidence of carrying out the threat. So structural power, they virtually had nothing. Um, with uh, the power of ideas and to shape the, the debate, we might recall that Gina Reinhart was on the back of trucks and, and yelling, stop the tax, and she had her supporters there chanting with her. And there was a, a very strong media campaign by the miners to, to try and... Um, uh, paint the new tax as being unfair. But at the end of that media campaign, the polls show that the public, uh, 50% approved the idea of the new tax, 28% disapproved. So while they tried hard, they actually didn't win the battle of ideas. They hadn't convinced the public. So throughout this book, the way um, Lindy Edwards described it is that if, well, if they didn't win on structural power and they didn't win on media and, and sort of the, the power of ideas, the only way they must have won was instrumental power, this sort of political donations, revolving door, boys' club, close connections, as the reason why our leaders would give us a result that was against the public interest and against the public desires. Why else 
would they do it? Makes sense. Yes, makes sense. Um, Gil, uh, Rudd, of course, was rolled. Gillard came in. She produced a, a really watered-down version of the tax mm-hmm. and um, so watered down that in 2013 the industry revenue was $200 billion and the extra tax from the new mining tax was $0.08 billion out of total revenue of $200 billion. So... Um, 2014, the coalition came in and repealed the tax, so it's gone. So, I mean, the question I, I would have firstly, though, is, is if an industry becomes more profitable, should the government legislate and change tax rates? What, uh, what, surely that discourages businesses from becoming more profitable. Uh, if there's super tax, if there's super profits available, though, if you're saying uh, we want you to invest um, but... These are, these are resources that belong to the community. And like that initial statistic, if, if the profits were $6 billion and we only got $2 billion tax, and then the profits were $32 billion and we only got $4 billion, um, in a progressive tax system, you normally say the more people earn, the more tax they should pay. Mm-hmm. So some of these taxes were just flat rate, you know, X dollar per tonne. And whatever you... Got above that. So intergenerationally, like a a future generation could look back and go, you guys just gave away our ore. It's gone. We don't have it back now. It was your duty as public owners to get the maximum you could from that ore for the community. It didn't, and it didn't just belong to your generation. It belonged to future generations. Like, Mm -hmm. does that sound like a reasonable argument? It's a good argument, but why... Did it take that particular boom? We've had mining booms before for people mm. to go, hang on a minute, these miners should pay a higher level of tax. Uh, I don't know what's happened in the past in previous mining booms. Maybe there were conservative governments in charge <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Quite possibly. Maybe. I, I don't know why. Maybe this one was one of the more extraordinary ones. Maybe this is a time when people actually see the figures and understand it where perhaps they didn't before. Um I don't know, Brian, why this time and not previously. Because we're going through a similar thing now with with online retailers. Yes. um, Where they're making, particularly Amazon, making extraordinary amounts of money. Yes. And and growing their market share incredibly and paying very little tax. Yes. Surely now is the time to actually look back on that mining tax, if you like, mistake. Yes. And look ahead and go, how do we legislate before we get into this situation? Yes. So, well, the classic example would be Amazon mm-hmm. coming into Australia and we're letting them. And, Brian, are we going to get any tax out of Amazon over the next 10 years? Oh, I would think highly unlikely. Yep. Highly unlikely. Are they going to close down a number of small businesses that were previously paying some sort of tax? Uh, well, I was certainly they're certainly mm-hmm. having an impact on mm-hmm. retailing at the moment. Yep. Uh, so I would imagine that the end result will that that some businesses will close, yes. Yeah. So um, so we're allowing them to come in and to basically, they don't care, Amazon, about making a margin. They're no. just after growth. Yep. So the mum and dad retailer currently operating, or the small business, has to make a profit, but Amazon doesn't. So they can just work on the very thinnest of margins. Two or 3% is fine. They just want market share because later on, once they've gained the market, 
then they can think about crunching the margins out and exercising mm. power. Yeah. We know that's going to happen. Yes. We know Jeff Bezos <laughs> is not a saint. We shouldn't be letting them in, right? Is the short answer like the lesson learned? Well, no, I don't think I don't think that's correct. I think you've got to allow consumers to have choice. You know, otherwise you start legislating on what consumers can and can't buy and who from. Yeah. What you've got to do is work out how those people pay a fair share. Yeah. So what- and and rather than being on profits, yeah. surely those larger organisations, we need to look at ways of taxing their revenue. Um. Rather than because you know Amazon are looking for market share, they're looking for growth. They're not looking to make any profit. However, they will generate an enormous amount of revenue. Yes. So a, a tax on sales yes. in Australia mm-hmm. um, without looking at profit. Yes. Yep. So rather than a thirty percent tax on profit, it should be a two percent tax on yeah. sales, or whatever. Well, you're in line with the Iron Fist Velvet Glove policies, Brian, because <laughs> we've been advocating that and we've been saying these guys should not be allowed in unless uh, we've got that sort of rule in place. And it's the same with Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't let them in. And if somebody like Jeff Bezos, for example, said, well, I'm not coming into Australia if you're going to have that tax regime, what have we lost? Nothing. Well, choice. You've choice. lost some choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that applies to Google yep. and Apple, yep. uh, Facebook, um, yep. any of the, the new media or technology companies have a different mm. business model to what mm. historically has been in place. Mm. And, you know, our tax laws were written in 1927 mm. and uh, they don't cope with new things coming in, mm. new business models. Tax laws were based around companies having some physical connection to the country that was taxing them. And now that we're such a globalised market and they can shift their operations around the world, they've become these slippery eels that nobody can get hold of because they can just uh, put themselves in some other jurisdiction. So we need a total rethink on on that. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, it's not just the technology companies. Any company that operates globally has transfer pricing Mm. uh, and you need a degree of transparency but certainly not complete transparency to operate. Mm. That's why when you look at um, the, uh, the, the, the tax office puts out figures of which companies have been paying tax in Australia and how much, and the companies that are paying tax pretty much close to the full rate um, are like our banks because they're just local Australian banks mm-hmm. with very limited offshore operations and no capacity to shift their, their profits offshore. So. Yeah. When you look at the figures, those sorts of guys end up paying um, the full corporate tax rate, but it's the more international technology ones. Well, that particularly need. when you're moving products and services around internationally. Yeah, yeah, and you can decide where to levy that levy that management fee or mm. take up the profits or not so much profits of product uh, yeah. production. So. Mm. so a group like Apple would say, "Oh, we've got our internet intellectual property." is owned by this Apple subsidiary based in Ireland or based in some other sort of tax haven type country. Mm-hmm. And the Australian enterprise has to pay a, a intellectual property fee to the Irish um, entity mm-hmm. as a means of, of transferring the profit out of Australia into the low tax country of Ireland. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what's happening all the time. Yep. And... 
we really need to come up with some formula that says how much have you sold in this country and you're going to pay a percentage based on that and yes. we don't care about your profits so much. Or what's your worldwide sales? What's your worldwide profit? Um, and it might be 20%. Okay, then on Australian sales, we deem you to have made 20% and we don't care about your in-house transfers. Some, some formula has to be done, but... There's nothing on the horizon that I can no. see, right? I, I, I would know about it. Oh, if they were talking about it. Well, yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting, when I was in the UK, we were paying uh, Google through their island office. Right. Yes. Phenomenal amount of money every month. Yes. And uh, used to irk me somewhat. Mm, yeah. Um, okay. So that was the mining tax was one. Uh, in her book, she talks about incidents where we had the banks with their financial use. We had the Telstra and the NBN situation, and we also had News Corp with media reform. But in chapter five, the one I'm interested in, and this is going to get us back to the shoppies union, is Coles and Woolworths, dear listener. So um, Coles and Woolworths obviously dominate uh, grocery sales in Australia. And um, they have such a size that it's impossible for any small player to come up and compete against them. We're really talking about you have to be an international large company like Aldi might come in and, and disrupt them. So they're, they're extremely powerful. And I want to give you some instances of abuse, uh, which Lindy talks about in her book. And feel free to chip in if any of these sound familiar, Brian, in your experience. But... Um, uh, so she's going to give a, a litany of, of occasions where uh, Coles or Woolworths exerted pressure on their on their suppliers, the farmers, the small biscuit manufacturers, the anybody supplying into the stores and what they were doing. So um, basically, um, in their supply contracts, they're so dominant that they can just write the rules, and farmers have to accept them because they've got no one else to sell to once they reach to a, a certain point. So uh, there's a case of a Tasmanian farmer. Well, well in their contracts um, with the farmers, they can retrospectively change the supply contracts as conditions change. So one Tasmanian farmer described having to plant crops for the largest possible order and then bulldozing most of that crop back into the ground each year when most of it wasn't needed. Um, so... They also required farmers to accept changes to prices and volumes of their orders after production had been commenced. Totally one-sided agreements that these guys could do. You had a friend who had a rose. I did. Uh, yes. yes. What's his we story? Had a, we had a – I've got a good friend of mine who produced roses, uh, a rose farm in Victoria, and his philosophy or business model was that he wouldn't let Coles or Woolworths get to be more than 10% of his total business because he was so fearful of what they would do uh, in terms of retrospective terms or um, putting him to the sword somewhat. Yeah. He'd seen their bullying behaviour yes. to other people and thought, I can't make myself vulnerable to that. Yeah, it's a uh, risk. Which um, served him well for quite some time, however... Uh, as it transpires, uh, you can actually import roses now cheaper than what you can grow them in Australia. Right. Um, and the, the problem with that particular instance is the roses don't last as long. However, uh, at, when people are par parking with their money, yeah. um, 
they don't consider that. Yeah, and they just wouldn't even know. No. Yeah, and yeah, that's interesting. So he got chaffed. So you could import roses from South America cheaper than what he could grow them. Right. In Victoria. Yeah. Okay, another example. Um, So, again, they're supply contracts. If the product wasn't sold after being stocked in the store... It was the supplier that absorbed the costs. If the goods had to be thrown out, the supplier was penalised with an array of charges and levies. And um, and also the suppliers would be charged for shrinkage, for stock that was stolen or damaged in store. <laughs> you only agree to these contracts when you have no choice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you only put these... In your contracts, if you're a complete bully and an asshole, you would consider charging these people for this. Of course, it, th- these supply contracts wouldn't be uniform. There are there would be a number of large suppliers yes. who don't necessarily have the same power, but would have more influence over Coles and Woolworths. Yes. So yeah. the power filters down to the smallest player. Yes. Who gets bullied the most. Yes. We'll talk about that right at the end. Uh, other things they had was um, ratcheting up the trade spend, which was um, stores have things called slotting fees where suppliers have to rent out shelf space. Yes. Have you had that experience of paying for shelf space? Absolutely, yeah. Right. Yep. And you pay more for the end caps. You pay, well, you, you, know, pay, you buy the end caps or yeah. pay for the end caps on promotions, but you yeah. pay for shelf space. Yeah. And clearly you pay a lot more for eye-level shelf space than you do upper-level or lower-level yeah. shelf yes. space. yes. Yep. So you're paying for the privilege of having your stock in their store. And to be yeah. seen. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, uh, the suppliers were charged fees um, for supermarket advertising, uh, you know, whether it was in catalogues or through television ads. Um, and when the supermarket decided to discount a, prof- a product, it was the supplier that absorbed the price cut. And in some cases, the supermarkets actually took the opportunity to uh, discount uh, the opportunity of the discount to increase their margins. So Barry Fawcett, the former owner of Aristocrat Biscuits uh, manufacturer, said this, that if your product was promoted in a supermarket and Aristocrat bread and butter cucumbers were on special for the week, they might say you would give the supermarket 10% and they might reduce it by 7%. So they'd be benefiting either 3% for the period of the promotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, for lots of suppliers, they would be devastated by supermarket-labelled goods. So Kellogg's might have rice bubbles, but stacked beside them on the same shelf would be the Coles rice puffs. Mm-hmm. look exactly the same. Well, I mean, both those organisations embarked on a massive home brands mm-hmm. uh, venture uh, I think probably starting in mid nineteen nineties, but really ratcheted up in in at the start of the two thousands. Yes, um, to try and drive more margin back into their business. Yeah, um, and they have such an advantage because they can see the sales of these things. Like they might not be sure whether a product's a goer or not, but they stock the branded version and go, "Holy heck, this stuff sells so well! <laughs> Time to make our own." That's right, and that. Dear listener, is what Amazon will do as well, is it will look at the information of... Because Amazon has private sellers as well, like yes. a bit like eBay. So yeah. if you've got a store, you can list it through mm-hmm. Amazon. The danger of that is that Amazon sees every sale you make 
and then goes, oh, gee, this particular widget's a big seller. We'll bring in our own. Yeah. Because we know it sells from watching your business. Yes. Even watching your business possibly even closer than you're watching it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly with better technology and artificial intelligence. So uh, it was always a debate um, that, that crossed our minds whether we would sell our product on Amazon. Right. And, uh, you know, it it opens up a whole new world in terms of volume. However, it opens up um, the the pressure that Amazon could apply to you and the knowledge you pass on to Amazon. Yes, incredibly risky for them to be aware of of Mm -hmm. how good you might be doing. Yes. Um, So all of these sorts of things were actually just legal because it was just part of their contract terms where they were basically saying, well, here's the contract and take it or leave it. But uh, Coles got into trouble when they ratcheted it up a, a bit more with some nasty new tactics in terms of rebates. And um, so they'd um, initiated what they called their Active Retail Collaboration or ARC program. Active Retail Collaboration. <laughs> this is going to be about a rebate, Brian. <laughs> so the, pro- the, ag- the, the program aimed to claw back the prices they'd been paid to their suppliers that they had paid to their suppliers. Coles staff were tasked with contacting suppliers and belatedly charging them rebates over and above the agreed contract terms. They claimed the rebates were for improved processes within the supermarket that would reduce in the supplier's costs. You know, we've got this new system, so it'll be cheaper for you, so now you need to pay us an extra rebate. And uh, But they had no analysis to support their claim. And Coles grouped their suppliers in terms of their market power and vulnerability and targeted the smallest and most vulnerable within with the highest rebate demands. You were talking earlier sounds, about sounds familiar, yeah. different contracts sure. depending on how I mean, vulnerable you are. Volume rebates have always been part of retailing. Mm. Mm. Retrospective rebates uh, is is not something that you would normally encounter. Yeah. So, do you want to describe a, a Dick Smith rebate? How, or how it works? Or yeah, sure. I mean, we we would um, be dealing with a particular supplier, and if we uh, before we'd start the year, we'd agree on a, a particular volume, and if we hit that volume purchasing from that supplier, they would give us a two percent or a three percent or a five percent rebate on all of the purchases made. Yep. Um, it was to encourage uh, us to buy their product, but also to encourage the supplier to be a good supplier towards us. Yep. Um, but it was always agreed beforehand. Yes. Um, and, you know, certainly I, the time I spent at Dick Smith Electronics, the um, our rebate system was incredibly complex because virtually every supplier had a different rebate system going. Yes. So we had three to four people working on uh, clawing back rebates all the time. Yes. Yep. Um, so I can't even start to imagine how complicated the Woolworths and Coles rebate systems are. Yes, yeah. So anyway, that sort of um, um, post-contract rebate demand, uh, the ACCC succeeded in prosecuting Coles for unconscionable conduct, uh, arguing they had gauged $16 million from suppliers with the rebate um, payments. So anyway, that sort of conduct is going on and... Coles got in trouble with the ACCC. So the um, Coles and Woolworths um, did a very clever thing. What they, they recognised that the government would probably have to do something. So before the government moved, they moved and said, you know what, we need an industry code of conduct just to sort things out so there's no misunderstandings in this industry. 
So that's clever to say, Very, yeah, let's get a code of conduct, uh, let the industry produce it, and and that'll let us clean up our own shop. Mm-hmm. Figuratively, brilliant. yes, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so, um, uh, so you know, when you're looking at a code of conduct um, to deal with this sort of stuff, the questions would be: Well, who should draft such a code? Should it be Coles and Woolworths, or should it be an industry public group, consumer group, or or, or politicians, or, or other people? Mm-hmm. Um, should it be voluntary or mandatory? I mean, if you can have a code of conduct, um, you'd like to think it should be mandatory, mandatory, yes, not voluntary. Um, should it be enforced by a simple ombudsman, or should it go through an expensive? mediation process if you do want to enforce the code of conduct and from the community's point of view you want suppliers to access a cheap and easy system of enforcing this which would be an ombudsman rather than a complicated legal process and the other question you might have is should you allow people to contract out of the code of conduct um, via one-on-one agreements so you could have a code of conduct saying certain things, but Coles could contract with Farmer A to say, oh, in this case, the code of conduct does not apply. Mm-hmm. I mean, the issue for suppliers, you know, even entering into a code of conduct is mm-hmm. uh, Coles and Woolworths can stop buying your product at any time they like. Yes. You know, and so would they be willing to even go into a mediation or a, or a discussion around unconscionable conduct with the fear that they'll lose that supply. Yes. Yep. Incredibly risky for them. Yeah. And this is what the ACCC said when they were taking um, complaints from people is these guys would come in literally quivering and shaking and, and demanding extreme confidentiality because they were so scared that their businesses were going to um, be wiped if uh, they were discovered as complaining to the ACCC. So on all those issues, dear listener, um, the major players won and the community lost. So the code of conduct that was eventually um, brought up um, was drafted by Coles and Woolworths, uh, basically. It's voluntary, not mandatory. Uh, It's got an expensive mediation process if you want to enforce it. And there's the ability to contract out of it, incredibly. So you could still, Coles could still say to a farmer, oh, on this occasion, we don't think we need the code of conduct. We'll have a a special contract. So um, the, the thing that would help this situation would be a third player, a strong mm. third player or fourth player, mm. uh, which is what Eldi is currently building its market share in Australia. Yes. Uh, it's now at about 15% of the grocery industry in Australia. Mm. Mm. Um, the problem that we've got with Eldi is it's a privately owned German company yes. that has no interest in paying tax in Australia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst it may well be good for suppliers in this particular instance, I'm not sure it helps us with an argument around foreign companies paying their fair share of tax. Good point. Yeah, good point. Um, this is sort of a, you know, well, okay, so they won on that occasion. And if you're looking at the liberal side of things, they there was a really strong case for small business and, and they're supposed to be part of the liberal base, like they call themselves the party of small business. And the advocacy groups for small businesses 
the vehement in wanting, um, you know, this code of conduct to come out in a way favourable to small business. But um, so the Liberal Party kind of had an internal conflict ideologically where it's supposedly for all business, big or small, and as much small as big. And there should have been a segment in the Liberal Party that said, oh, we've got to protect small business. Um, That's not how it panned out. Also, you would have thought the Labor Party would have been uh, objecting to what the big players were doing in this case. But uh, Lindy Edwards gives the... um, explanations being the shoppers union that so both parties rolled over on this uh, liberal and labor waved it through um despite it clearly being against the public interest and yeah she put it down to the to labor being um giving a free run to the shoppers union so the shoppers union uh signs up lots of members um through those two organizations and the the implication is that they go easy on Coles and Woolworths because um, they get a lot of members through them that fills up their coffers and makes them a powerful union in the union movement. Mm-hmm. They sure do. Yeah. I mean, both those organisations employ 150,000 people. Yeah. And I think, um, not 100% certain, but I think most of those would be members of the shop shoppers union. Yeah, yeah. So, um, which is interesting in the in the most recent uh, issues around pay, mm. uh, the union's been nowhere to be heard or seen. Right in in these underpayments that's been going on at Coles and Target and Woolworths and yes. and not necessarily not not suggesting that it's been deliberate. Yep. However, there's been a lack of uh, advocacy on on the behalf of unions. I think indeed, yeah, the shoppers union in particular mm. very quiet on that front when it's a thing where they should have been well they should have been the ones discovering all this Correct. in the first place um so so yeah so in terms of um uh um structural power coles and woolies couldn't go overseas in terms of the power of ideas certainly the public was in favor of helping out the small players um why did it win? Well, it had to be instrumental power. It was this sort of political donations. It was this revolving door. And in the case of the Labor Party, it looks like there was this close association with the shoppers union and, the, and these two organisations that meant that, again, we got a result where our political leaders have given us something that clearly was against the public interest and against what the public wanted. But it just happens. Yes. I mean, the grocery industry is quite unique. We talk about mm. the big four banks. Mm. We have two companies who control 80% of what we eat mm. in Australia. Yes. Um, and that's enormous market power. It's too much power. Like, well, in the, uh, in the US they had their um, – they were famous back in the 30s, I think, when basically some oil companies and other railway businesses and that got too big. They basically split them up and they say, you're too big. You have too much power. Antitrust laws, is, that's mm. what it's about, is to say you dominate this industry too much. Uh, we reach the point where antitrust laws need to be applied on Coles and Woolworths. Interestingly, Woolworths have just announced their uh, 
some results in the paper this morning and their growth, uh, despite all of the gloom and gloom, doom and gloom about retail, they've had quite strong growth over the last six months. Right. Um, well, people still have to eat, don't that, they? That's right. Yeah. So they might be able to spend it on tech gadgets or whatever or fashion or things like that, but they still have to eat. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of a recession-proof business mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, so, yeah. So, so dear listener, uh, so that was all about big companies using their power to either influence politicians or to bully small players. And, Brian, I haven't given you full warning of this next topic right. that's related to this. So, um, um, so I'm saying that a lot of corporate profit in that sense is unfair if it's arisen through that sort of influencing of politicians or the bullying of smaller players, seems to me to be unfair. People would say, well, look, we need large corporations because uh, they invent stuff, they innovate. Um, so there's some downsides to having big players, but on the other hand, we get things like the iPhone that you wouldn't get from smaller players. And and that's the beauty of the capitalist system that... Um, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's it's the uh, Trevor. You seem to be very anti-capitalist in this rant that you're going on. Um, but you know this sort of innovative technology that we get from big companies is is something as a positive that we need to factor into the equation. And I've been reading another book, dear listener. This one is called um, "The Entrepreneurial State: Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths" by Mariana Mazzucato who's an economist, and um, she's taken a close look at Apple and the iPhone because this, dear listener, is also related to an argument that I have with Woz, one of our patrons, because he talks about uh, the philanthropy of um, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and how we'd rather have those guys um, doling out their philanthropy because he trusts them more to use the money well than he would fat, lazy government that just wastes money. So um, so this was, if you're listening, I know you are, is sort of part of the counter to that argument. And, um, and it's also part of the – and what I'm getting to is this argument of, um, of the, a company like Apple being a great innovator. And, okay, they're an innovator, but I want to downplay just how much they innovate to some extent, okay? So let me find the right page here um, to get to Right, so on in her book, page 116, neat little um, flowchart, which I will maybe put a picture of that on the, on the website. Anyway, uh, looking at the first generation iPod uh, before we got to the iPhone and the iPad, so some of the technology that went into the iPod, and the argument will be that, Every single piece of significant technology in the iPod, iPhone, iPad um, suite of products was basically created through public money research. And the genius of Apple was to take existing inventions and um, combine them into one commercial piece. But the, the, the smart stuff in your smartphone wasn't invented by Apple. They just grabbed stuff that had been invented in in uh, publicly funded universities or in programs that were funded by the US 
Department of Defence, which spent a lot of money um, in these high-tech areas for defence reasons, and that created products. So um, DARPA, D-A-R-P-A, is the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency from the US, and CERN, C-E-R-N, is the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. So these are all publicly funded bodies. The microprocessor came from DARPA. The micro hard drive came from the Department of Energy and DARPA. The liquid crystal display came from uh, three different government bodies. And just to give you an idea with um, uh, some of these things, with the liquid crystal display, um, this technology came about during the 1970s when the thin film transistor was being developed at the laboratory of Westinghouse under the direction of Peter Brody. The research carried out at Westinghouse was almost entirely funded by the US Army. However, when management at Westinghouse decided to shut down the research, um, Brody had to find uh, funding opportunities elsewhere. So he contacted a number of top computer and electronic companies, including Apple and others such as Xerox, 3M, IBM, DEC, Compact. All of these major private companies refused to sign on with Brody, largely because they doubted his ability to build the manufacturing capability necessary to provide the product. Um, In 1988... Um, after receiving a $7.8 million contract from DARPA. Uh, he established MagnaScreen to develop the TFT LCD, and this advancement in the LCD technology became the basis for the new generation displays on portable electronic devices. That's just one example of how just the screen came from publicly funded um, uh, institutions. Signal compression came from Army Research Office. Lithium-ion batteries, Department of Energy. DRAM caching came from DARPA. And even the click wheel came from CERN. So that all went into the iPod, first generation, 2001. And then getting on to the later ones, uh, obviously they had internet capability and the internet came from DARPA. Um, cellular technology came from the US military. Uh, HTTP and HTML protocols came from CERN. Um, multi-touch screens came from a bunch of government-funded organisations and GPS navigation came from Department of Defence and the Navy. And even Siri came from DARPA. So just to give you an example with Siri, Brian... You're familiar with Siri? You I like am. using Siri? No, no I, don't, I don't use Siri, but I'm familiar with Siri. Yep. So um, so Siri has its roots in federal funding and research. DARPA asked the Stanford Research Institute to take the lead on a project to develop a sort of virtual office assistant to assist military personnel. Uh, SRI uh, was put in charge of coordinating the Cognitive Assistant that Learns and Organises project which included 20 universities all over the US collaborating to develop the necessary technological base. When the iPhone was launched in 2007, SRI recognised the opportunity for this technology as a smartphone application and commercialised the technology by forming Siri as a venture-backed startup in the same year. And in 2010, Siri was acquired by Apple for an amount that is undisclosed by both parties. So... The book's premise is that serious basic research is way too risky for 
private enterprise, which especially today needs as these short-term financial goals and the true innovation has in the past come from government-funded groups because they can afford to take the risk and that increasingly when you're looking at uh, research and development by major companies, the development part, i.e. marketing, is really the big component. The the research part is very small. (laughs) And these companies are not actually, like these pharmaceutical companies as well, are not actually researching. They're they're basically acquiring research that's been done through public institutions and patenting it, acquiring it, and then corralling it and then forcing people to pay a bucket load of money for it. So, Ryan, tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So you're suggesting we should uh, uh, nationalise Apple? No, I'm not. The the question I've got for you about Apple is, is... what happened to Nokia in all of that? Uh, they they stuck with the old technology. They didn't... Uh, but the technology was available without them having to do any research. The, well, look, as I said, the beauty of Apple is they were smart to take these technologies and assemble them into a well-designed commercial product. So I'm, I'm happy for Apple to make money and to be rewarded to some extent for what it's achieved. But I'm just saying on balance you have to understand that that the uh, technologies that they relied on came from, came from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but that could apply to anything. I mean, you know, it, space travel. Indeed. And, and, that, and that needs to be recognised, though, because people think, oh, well, without these guys it would never have happened. Well, it, it, it would have eventually. And, but it's, Are you it's sure about, about that? It's about um, paying... Let's look at um, Amazon and Jeff Bezos. What has he provided us that nobody else would have done? He's just the first in to have a, a global internet shop. But somebody could have, anybody could have done that. But they didn't. But And they can't now because now it's dominated. But but at some oh, stage... No, that's not quite true. I mean, you've got Alibaba in China that, mm. that's probably bigger than Amazon. Is it? Mm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know... We, we see Amazon through the eyes of a Western world. Mm, true. Um, Alibaba is true. seen through Chinese and Asian eyes. True. Um, yeah. And you wonder what will happen, say, with India, which is, I saw today, predicted to be the third largest economy in the world within yeah. 10 years. So, yeah. you know, we've got to be careful that we don't judge an Amazon just as a standalone. True. But in a lot of these technology-based industries... The, the big battle is to be the first and to gain the major share before other entrants come in. Mm-hmm. So there's a recognition that what's being done isn't actually that unique or difficult. It, that The trick is to get in and get the market share and be the, be the dominant player before others can get in which recognises that it's quite possible for others to get in. It's a matter of, of, of that market share. Like that's been a lot of what technology, I'm thinking Uber, I'm thinking... Airbnb. Uh, yes, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get in first and dominate, uh, at some stage, I don't know who thought up Airbnb, but it wasn't going to take long if they didn't, for somebody else to think up Airbnb. Like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. Like, there's some legitimacy in that. 
Yeah. And there's just got to be some, um, so, so hats off to Apple for, for, of, of course, they've added value to their product. And of course, they've done, um, in, in the case of Apple, you could argue, okay, we would not have had an Apple without Steve Jobs. It would have been something quite different. But you still have to take into account, hang on, these guys really relied on a lot of public effort and a lot of public infrastructure. And so that needs to be taken into account when thinking of taxing them and rewarding them. The, the, people talk about the brave entrepreneurial spirit of risk-taking that needs to be rewarded. And increasingly, risk-taking is, is not happening. And in fact, what's happening is it's a corralling of, of a monopolistic situation as quickly as you can before other people can get in. That's how I see it. So Apple, I, th- I think part of Apple's genius is the fact that they uh, are probably risk-adverse about developing new products their, their product range is very, very small. It's probably one of the smallest product ranges of a large corporation in the world. Mm. If you look at the number of products they actually sell, it's very small. Mm. So they've what you'd call stuck to their knitting. Yes. Um, and their discipline around not doing too much product development is is quite phenomenal. Yes. So what they do do, though, is is improve their existing product range without going out and looking at new things. Yes. If you go into an Apple store and go, okay, how many products do you actually sell? There's hardly any. Mm. Yeah, that's true. They stick to their knitting. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, so yes, they are clever and focused and and innovative in particularly in design and and to gather all of those technologies and to actually make them work as seamlessly as they do. You know, hats off to them. But by the same token, we have to um, downplay the innovation and risk taking. And recognise that a lot of it came from from public money mm-hmm. it was the basis for the inventions. So the only other thing to add to the Apple story was that, um, uh, of course, tax is still a big problem even for the Americans. Um, Apple shifts its profits overseas and says, "Well, thanks for all that technology that uh, your public institutions created, but um, we're not going to contribute to that." And uh, yeah. So there we go, a little bit of corporate power um, and how it's operating in the world, Brian. Any other thoughts on corporate power in your experience? Uh, no, Trevor, that's been a very enjoyable experience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dear listener, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I think next week I'll be back with uh, Scott and Paul, maybe on Wednesday night, I think. Uh, we'll do a live stream and all that, be back to a normal current affairs um, program. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye. Cheryl, where's the girl who helps me with this? I'm trying to leave a message for that fist fellow and that velvet glove person. What what do you mean she's on lunch? She needs lunch? Goodness me, I have to pay sick leave, I have to pay for annual leave. This is why we need corporate tax breaks in Australia. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone 
and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.